the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Dr. Lisa Canada. She has more than two decades of experience in a level one trauma center. She is a former chair of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons Board of Directors Board of Specialty Societies from 2017 to 2018, and has published more than 130 research papers and two textbooks. I've been looking forward to this interview for a couple of months, and I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, and I wanted to talk today on some different trauma topics. And I based the discussion or the script on some meetings that you gave us recently at one of our PA CME meetings. I have to say, I haven't been on call at a level one trauma center as a PA, uh, so some of the slides you had and some of the work you're doing, that's not in my wheelhouse, but I do get some urgent care, some you know pretty significant traumas, and do we need to work on it there in-house, or can that person wait till the next day, or do we need to go in? And that was kind of similar to your talk about making it through the night, the presentation that you gave us. And I thought that you gave some fantastic advice, very sage advice, and I really wanted to talk some about that. So with that in mind, you had described a basic trauma triage or classification strategy where you outline life-threatening, limb-threatening, and functional-threatening. And I was just wondering, you know, I remember being in the ED and before PA, I was an extra tech and I worked in the ED and a level one trauma center. So I, I kind of know how exciting things can be and how the adrenaline gets going. How do you triage these trauma patients? Well, the most important thing is don't get distracted if you have one of those gory open fractures because everyone just pays attention to the open fracture or mangled extremity and forgets about the basics. Trauma basics never change. That is A, B, and C, airway, breathing, and circulation. And you need to remember that. I know we had a level one trauma center in the leg. Lady was run over by a bus and actually needed an amputation, a primary amputation, but everyone was so enthralled by the goriness of her leg. They forgot the basics and she was sitting there and had a pneumothorax and that kind of trumps a mangled extremity because there was circulation still to the leg. That's the important thing is don't get distracted by how bad the injury may seem or how gory the dislocation may be or the wounds or whatever. Uh, concentrate on the basics, remembering trauma basics. And then when it comes to orthopedics, going through my algorithm, life-threatening injuries. Life-threatening injuries include an open pelvic fracture. That's a life-threatening injury. And if it turns up at one of your places, it's not a level one trauma center. You know, you don't want to waste time doing all kinds of studies. You want to get that transferred out. Uh, that's very important to look at that. Other injuries that are life-threatening orthopedic include bilateral femur fractures and major open fracture to an extremity with vascular injury. Those kind of things you really, if they're at your center, you need to temporize and get out as soon as possible instead of leaving it there. So life-threatening injuries don't belong in the CT scanner. They belong getting in a helicopter or on another ground transport uh, to get addressed uh, by a center that can address them. That's for life-threatening injuries. For limb-threatening injuries, sometimes it may necessitate that no matter where you are, you do temporize. 
and limb-threatening injuries include multiple long bone open fractures. Those are limb-threatening injuries. A knee dislocation is a limb-threatening injury. Uh, and that really, you can lose your limb and it's really important to make sure there's no vascular injury with a knee dislocation. But again, if there's COVID, uh, lack of availability of beds, which seems to be a problem nowadays, or if there's bad weather and you can't transport, you have to know what you can do to temporize. Compartment syndrome is a limb-threatening injury. You never want to transfer a compartment syndrome. Any surgeon, uh, you know, should be capable. We hate, you know, especially an orthopedic surgeon uh, should be capable of doing a fasciotomy uh, if that if they don't need to fix a fracture and that might not be something they're comfortable with. But fasciotomies are something that every board certified orthopedic surgeon should be comfortable with and should be comfortable handling if it can't be transferred. You never want to transfer an active compartment syndrome because you don't know the logistics of the transfer and OR availability on the other side. And the last group was function-threatening injuries, and that includes dislocations, spine fractures, and interarticular fractures. Really important with a dislocation to reduce the dislocation, especially a hip dislocation really needs reduced in a native hip. I'm not talking about periprosthetic. I'm talking about a native hip because of the lack of blood supply that is happening, and time is of the essence in improving your outcome. So those are just some examples. I didn't go through every example of every injury, but just wanted to highlight some of them from the talk. Absolutely. It's great information. I, I hope we have a, a lot of people listening to this. I'm sure we will. You also advise that when you have a trauma patient and you're trying to decide, okay, do we need to go to the OR at 3 a.m. or can we wait until the morning, that you needed to ask some more basic trauma questions beyond the ABCs. What can the patient tolerate what can the limb tolerate and what can the skin tolerate? And I was hoping you might provide a little uh, color on that. First, those questions don't necessarily pertain to the 3 a.m. or not. Whether you go at 3 a.m. is more related to the, is the injury life-threatening, limb-threatening, or function-threatening? And when you're dealing with open fractures, definitely the trend in orthopedic surgery has been towards the more reasonable lifestyle and not taking one or two centimeter open fractures to the operating room in the middle of the night when you might not have the orthopedic team helping you or staff that is. And, and if you have an orthopedic trauma room, the advent of an orthopedic trauma room available at 7 a.m. or first start every morning has really changed what goes in the middle of the night. However, there's no excuse for not taking a grossly contaminated fracture or a limb-threatening injury to the operating room at 3 a.m. But what do you need to do? When you're planning emergent surgery in a trauma patient, they might have three or four extremities injured. Do you need to spend 10 hours in there, you know, fixing or temporizing everything? The answer is no. You have to look at a couple things. What can the patient tolerate? What is their condition? What is their lactate level? What is their base access? What is their hemoglobin and hematocrit? What are their fluid requirements? Are they on pressors? If they're on pressors, this is when you want to get in and out and temporize and just make them comfortable. For example, if someone has a head injury, you don't want to leave fractures moving around. So an external fixator would be perfectly appropriate in a multi-trauma patient with a head injury. 
that's going to help in decreasing the pressures in their brain, which may be there uh, from their head injury. You don't want to give anything that would increase their blood pressure and drive their pressures up. So therefore, temporizing with an external fixator would be appropriate. So that's what can a patient tolerate? Look at their labs, especially the ones that we monitor multi-trauma patients, look at their injuries. And then also what can the skin tolerate? If we think about it, when a patient comes in, their skin is really not that swollen and this, their skin and their soft tissues are going to continue to swell for the next three to five days, if not longer. And if you go ahead and do an extensive surgery, you might find that with the expanding skin, you could have wound issues. You could get a compartment syndrome if you try and close someone that you operated on with tissue that's swelling up. So that's what's important. And also many times the skin has other, you know, other, in addition, there could be degloving injuries. Uh, there could be bruising and abrasions which are present. So all of those need to come into consideration when planning emergent operating room. Usually you're never in there for a long period of time because of the condition in those types of patients. So you had mentioned earlier about femur fractures and you presented at the conference one of your studies with bilateral femur fractures and a 25% mortality. And I, I don't see that many femur fractures in a walk-in urgent care, but I do get them. Periprosthetic fractures are very common. I have seen the interprosthetic femur fractures that you had mentioned that you really can't wait to see that one come up on your plate. I was wondering, could you explain a little bit about why there's such a high mortality in bilateral femur fractures? When I was uh, starting my training, and that was in the 1996 to 2001, I was a resident, and then I was a fellow 2001 to 2002. The mortality rate of bilateral femoral shaft fractures in a trauma patient was 25%. Have we gotten better? Yes, we're now you know, in single digits between six and 8%, but there's a couple things that's why that has decreased. First of all, we really pay attention to patient parameters, to the lab values, to their physiology. We pay attention to all of that. And also techniques have also changed before in when I was training, the, you know, the only way to fix a femur at that time was an antegrade nail that is going through the hip and specifically through the piriformis fossa. Since then, uh, different types of femoral nails exist, which are used for femur fractures, including a different starting point, a trochanteric entry nail, and also a retrograde femur nail. The advantages of a retrograde femur nail, and that was what my study was on, was you can do it on, uh, you don't require a special fracture table, uh, no patient repositioning, and it makes it uh, with the ease of insertion into the knee, uh, perhaps the case is faster in some surgeons' hands, which actually is also helping to contribute to decreased mortality rate. The mortality rate from the femur fractures comes usually from the accompanying injuries and systemic effects, uh, such as the lungs. If you're reaming and completing multiple passes of the reamer, that it adds insult to injury and that can affect their outcome. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, bilateral femur fractures had a uh, high mortality rate, this excessive reaming too. Really, I keep in mind the patients and their physiology and tailor my treatment appropriately without going in and completing extensive reaming in these patients either. 
Dr. Canada, thanks for coming on talking to us about trauma topics today. You're welcome. Dr. Canada gave presentations at our recent Extremities in the Carolina course in May, and we now have those as audiovisual content, so check it out. PAOS members on the webpage, non-members, contents on the AAPA website.